0: Welcome
1: to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS Pod. I am Lalita Duperan, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I am beyond thrilled to welcome to the SassPod, Denmori Sundararajan executive director of the Dalit advocacy group Equality Labs and current visiting fellow of the Centre for South Asia at Stanford. Her book, The Trauma of Caste, A Dalit Feminist Meditation on Survivorship, Healing and Abolition, is coming out on the 15th of November 2022 and has a foreword by Tarana Burke and an afterword by Dr. Cornell West. I do want to add a content warning that this podcast will likely contain references to violence, rape, and suicide. Then, Morty, I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. How are you? Oh, I am thrilled to be here, and really
2: excited to dig into this conversation with you um i respect you so much and the center so much and really want to be able to open up this conversation
1: with deep compassion for all of our listeners today so very excited thank you for framing it in that way um now we have a lot to talk about the book is fantastic but before we get into talking about the book can you explain for our listeners who may not know um what the term dalit means Sure.
2: So, you know, for folks that are just getting into the conversation related to caste, Mm -hmm. it's one of the oldest systems of domination in the world. It has its origins in 2000 BC. And, you know, like other social fictions, it divides, you know, divides people so that there's a select few at the top that defines all of the outcomes for people in the rest of society. And, um, and for those of us who are cast oppressed, we were the ones at the bottom. In fact, they called us untouchable because we were seen to be spiritually defiling to other people. And, you know, it, as a result, um, you know, we basically said we refuse that epithet mm-hmm. and we call ourselves Dalit, those who are broken, but resilient. And, um, and so I use the term Dalit, but many caste oppressed people use other terms. And it's really the choice of that person that really matters. And so I think as people start to get comfortable with anti-caste discourse, there are so many resources and my new book is one of them that helps you get familiarized with the logic of caste, mm-hmm. uh, but also how to become part of a global movement to resist and, um, and heal from it.
1: Tell me a little bit about the book as a whole for um, and obviously we'll talk about it in much more detail. But um, for example, the chapters are referred to as meditations. And I'm curious, what made you choose that particular approach? Well,
2: you know, as anyone who has experience with other dominator systems like that of, you know, race or um, patriarchy, I think that um, we can sometimes really intellectualize. And have um, a very logical conversation mm-hmm. about these systems, which actually are very multidimensional in the way that they wound our bodies, our minds, our spirits, and our hearts. And and I think that with caste, you know, you know, we we have incredible documentation and literature and research driven by Dalit scholars who really examined the the horrific. Um, nature of caste exclusion, you know, um, and the Institute for Dalit Studies in Delhi, and Professor Shakti Thorat is one of those kind of leading um, uh, uh, researchers, as well as you know, phenomenal scholars like Professor Chinaya Jungam and Shailaja mm-hmm. Pike, and you know, Professor Kancha Ilya have really talked so much about the the dimensions of how this works in political and economic and educational spheres. But one sphere which we have very little conversation about is the psychosocial dimension mm. and that of um, uh, intergenerational trauma and harm, and that's really where I felt I could really contribute effectively to the conversation about caste, because you know, as someone who is you know caste oppressed in the diaspora, there's actually no reason for caste to exist here because caste is really predicated on the relationships, you know, within a land base, you know, and within existing structures where you have dominant caste people who run all of the institutions in South Asia. Mm -hmm. That's not the case for North America and for the United States. And so it's very peculiar that immigrants that left that world came here and then recreated these horrific dynamics here. Mm -hmm. And that only happens in the context of unconscious, uh, replicated intergenerational trauma. And that's why I wrote it in the context of meditations, because I really had to look at my own pain, look at my own experiences of discrimination and bigotry, and and really think about how um, this suffering could be ameliorated both through kind of internal practices of mindfulness and self-reflection and also mindfulness and action in terms of our relationships interpersonally. And then of course, you know, then being in right relationship with each other, creating movements that can bring real structural change and ultimately healing to Mm -hmm. our community from this terrible wound that is cast. So the meditations are really meant to provoke and create empathetic and compassionate ways for us to confront this really tender taboo for us. And so to bring us all together into the same sphere, um, I felt like meditation would allow us to slow down enough, to be quiet enough and thoughtful enough around this pain so that we could examine the cast soul wound
1: and tend to it and heal together. Thank you for that beautiful explanation. Um, I, I, so caste is many people talk about it. Many people know a little bit, but not a lot. Now, whatever we feel about um, Isabel Wilkerson's book on caste, I loved a lot of it, not all of it, but I do think she put caste um on the map of a broader audience. Um, do you feel the comparison of caste and race and perhaps more importantly the comparison of of brahmanism and or a caste privilege and white supremacy is useful or is it reductive or or maybe a bit of both uh
2: i it was useful for me as someone who was both was born in the united states yeah because i was both racialized as a south asian yeah. so i have a deep you know, experience and understanding of what white supremacy is mm. and how that's dehumanized me as a person of color. Um, and also, you know, caste oppressed people are essentially minorities within minorities. Yes, so, And I think that's actually very hard for a lot of people who aren't South Asian to understand is that, we may have been flattened into being a South Asian American, but it's a category fraught with tension because it's there's all these communities that actually back home have very, very traumatic histories and fault lines related to geography, language, caste and religion. And that's why caste depressed people have, you know, really talked about not only being minorities within minorities, but requiring explicit cast equity civil rights protections because we are facing such significant rates of discrimination from uh the other south asians and that's not visible with people um outside of our community because their only framework of domination they understand is white supremacy um so i think that you know the thing i really appreciated about isabel's book was that It globalized a conversation about race and caste in a way that I saw oppressed people looking at each other. You don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to agree with her point of view about it, Mm -hmm. but she has a right to be able to look through the lens of Black internationalism for frameworks that help to understand um, her experience. And there is a legal understanding of how specifically in the United States, Caste was used to build the legal framework for abolitionism here at a time when our laws were so racist, there was no framework for racial civil rights. That's why, in so many historic legal um you know legal cases related to race you see people referring to the term caste even it's there even in Plessy versus Ferguson so it's it, it's I would not get too hung up on whether or not race and caste are the same thing because they're not but are they useful analogies for oppressed people to understand their experience Absolutely and for me as a Dalit feminist, I never found the kind of, uh, political home uh, within post-colonial writers and texts uh, because I didn't see myself in them, yeah. but I was mentored by BIPOC women of color leaders that came out of the, 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 the BIPOC feminist movements of the seventies and eighties. And they were the ones both through their writings and through their mentorship that gave me home and gave me confidence to lean into an intersectional identity as a Dalit and cast oppressed feminist. And so the work of Gloria Anzaldúa and you know um, Ruthie Gilmore and Angela Davis and Patricia Hill Collins, that's where I found my voice. That's where I found my place. and um, And so I think that it's a particularly appropriate thing for us to be able to look at texts of oppressed people when they're in conversation and relationship with each other, because we're not just, theorizing from above we're actually in a conversation about mutual liberation yeah. and 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 that's why so much of my book really weaves the dalit experience with other lessons from black and indigenous and asian and latinx thinkers because that is very much true to my own practice like i not only you know both in my work as an individual organizer but also in the work of equality labs we are, you know, which is the Dalit Civil Rights Organization that I run. Um, we are very committed to mutual solidarity and learning from other movements, and certainly in the realm of intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. and um, and how to look at. Um, you know, caste stress over generations. Some of the best thinkers of this are indigenous and Black somatic abolitionists and healers. And so I really leaned heavily on the idea of intergenerational harm that was sketched out by Mar- Maria Le- um, Braveheart mm-hmm. and um, you know Edwarda Duran and how they spoke about um, the caste, the, the 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 racial soul wound that is at the heart of colonization and also how, um, you know, in turn, Resmaa Menachem took that idea of the soul wound and talked about it in terms of the racial soul wound. Mm-hmm. And it's just that embodiment piece yeah. was so critical for me. And I, I think that that, that that kind of mixture that happens between oppressed peoples, as we're theorizing and finding joint joy and possibility in each other's life worlds, that is the possibility of um, you know this beautiful kind of theoretical space yeah. that's created by you
1: know theorists of color in this moment. Thank you, uh, that was amazing. Um, I appreciate you so much. Um, to, to continue on the theme of of um, kind of shared activism, you, you write in the book um, that Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. And I, so this is your words, uh, Tarana Burke and I have known each other since our 20s. A constant theme of our conversation is what it would mean for Dalit and Black survivors to have power in society. What does survivor power really look like? That's the end of the quotation. Can you, Denmorti, can you speak to that a little? I, I feel the way that, quote unquote, victims have reclaimed survivor status rather than being identified by victimhood is an act of power. But to me, that still feels a little different, perhaps a little bit less active than survivor power. What does that look like for you?
2: Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that, you know, I, I use a very expansive notion of survivor within mm-hmm. this book. I think typically when we're using the discourse of survivor, we are certainly only talking about gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I actually use it in multiple domains. You know, first and foremost, one of the things that is never really discussed because Dalit experience is not centered in the examination of caste appropriately. Is that fundamentally because caste has its origins in religious uh, scripture and is now found in the religious practices of all South Asian uh, communities of faith? um, Is that we are fundamentally survivors of religious abuse, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know, because we are not allowed the same pathway to the divine that other people are. In fact, we are seen as spiritual criminals because we did bad things in another yeah. life. Therefore, we deserved to be punished and excluded in this one.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
2: you know, lot, we focus a lot on what does that practically materially look like, you know? Um, but on, a, on an existential level, it is a very deep wound mm-hmm. because you never feel like you are part of the fabric of the universe. Yeah. You never feel like you have a right to be the way that other people do, you know, and I, you know, I, we talked about it in that talk, but I always thought about how ironic it was that other people go out and they look at the stars and they're like, who am I and where do I belong? That, 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 that choice, that ability to pursue and be a seeker is stolen from us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we are told that we don't even have a place in front of the divine. And of course that's a lie. It's just a lie. And no one has the right to determine anyone's position towards, you know, the mysteries of the universe. And so to claim our dignity, to de- claim our divine right is like a first and important place of survivor power. But there's other realms of survivorship that I also claim. You know, I have also been a survivor of gender-based violence and also of police violence. Mm. And so in thinking about those things, you know, one of the things I really learned both as a Me Too board member and in the work that we've done um, in Me Too has a whole platform called the Survivor's Agenda is that, you know, many times people think that Me Too is about attacking the, you know, and bringing to justice the person that caused you harm. Mm -hmm. But what people forget is that there is not a single societal institution that doesn't have a survivor of gender-based violence in it. Mm -hmm. Survivors are lawyers, they're doctors, they're bus drivers, they are cooks, they are um, social workers. They are in every profession, every domain, every city, every country, and every body of government. Yeah. But we do not assemble ourselves in a way where we are a political force that actually can topple tyrants, rapists, mm-hmm. and fascists. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I was talking about with survivor power is that um, you know, what I've learned in being in community with other survivor organizations and leaders within the Me Too movement is that there is this profound place where We can take our vision for accountability and transformation and healing and go beyond the person that caused this injury and actually look at the systems that are empowering people that are creating the conditions for our injury. And that we can actually put forth visionary candidates that center safety and power for all. And that's what survivor power is, Mm -hmm. is us being able to turn pain into power, into possibility, into hope, and ultimately into wisdom. And that's a very different parameter than people are used to thinking about when they're thinking about Dalit women who have been the targets of caste-based sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Imagine if someone were to become the next prime minister of a South Asian country, and they said very proudly, I'm a survivor Mm -hmm. and I wanna make sure this never happens again. Mm -hmm. So it's about claiming our political stake in the world. It's about claiming our our ability to govern the many institutions that we're a part of. And also saying that when we are in the seat of power, it's not just a a diversity mark of us just joining it. We transform everything when we're Mm -hmm. at the table. Mm -hmm. The table itself is (laughs) completely radically changed. Yes.
1: (laughs) um thank you uh, let's talk about kind of a l- larger politics a little bit more because you write about environmental racism and climate castism and um i want you i would like you to explain a little bit more what you mean with those terms
2: well i think that this is going to be something that's really new for folks um, who are thinking about climate change? Who aren't used to hearing from voices that are looking at climate change from the context of the global majority? Right. But in reality, South Asia is one of the most deeply hit regions. Um, mm-hmm related to climate change. And not only is there no comprehensive plan, we actually have um, democracies that are in crisis that are run by very, very dangerous people whose interests are very short term in terms of their outcomes for millions, hundreds of millions of people. And in the United States, we talk a lot about the just transition, where the idea is is that as we work to, you know, transition out of fossil fuels, we must also center, repair, and remedy the harm that has happened to uh, communities that have faced environmental racism. You know, and this is a movement that was really fought for by black and indigenous and Latinx communities that live in these environmental, um, you know, um, border lines where there's just so much discrimination and that also allow for so much violence. So too in South Asia, um, you know, many of the communities that are facing the brunt of climate change policies are caste oppressed, religious and indigenous minorities they are not centered at these tables or their conversations. But if we actually center those communities, these are the communities that are closest to the fields that need to transform in terms of us moving away from fossil fuels and into um, more sustainable models of of production. Mm -hmm. And because what we're talking about, it's not like the fuels that we consume are separate from the economies that we conduct ourselves in. And so what does it mean to have an all green economy, but still have vast amounts of worker exploitation and desecration? You know, that's why the just transition in our context has to look at the way that casteism is part of the the problem Mm -hmm. and also center you know, just labor practices and just land steward- land stewardship practices, and work to transform the very ethos of how we engage with each other. And there's many wonderful thinkers who have really led the way on this. You know, and you know um, Mukul Sharma's book that really cites many caste oppressed thinkers, whether it's Badiar or Ayodidas or You know, Professor Concha Ilya, this idea of the kind of mindset that's required to center caste depressed people and environmental concerns is so urgent right now. Mm -hmm. um, Because the path that we're on is not only just widespread environmental degradation, but also the misery of hundreds of millions of people as you know, you have countries like Bangladesh that are going to lose the majority of their their arable land and and refugees and create a refugee crisis that is one of the largest in world history. So we are in a moment where everything is on the precipice, you know, and, you know, and I think particularly as we deal with, like, the crisis of climate change and we are dealing with the crisis of the pandemic and now the crisis of ethno-nationalism, We have a choice as a people, you know, we can lean into our fear and our darkest impulses and, um, and give in to division, or we can choose life and we can choose to heal and to slow down and think about what is another path other than genocide and climate collapse.
1: But is there space Um, for that? I mean, I I love what you say, and of course I'm with you, but I feel that, the the issue of oil and and what it does to the to um the economy as well as the planet hasn't really become a topic since the war in ukraine and now white people are actually suffering so people in england can't afford their energy bills and people in parts of europe have to keep their um, thermostat low because there's such a high price on on energy. And so now we're talking about it. But the people that make these decisions, I feel that if they could see what you talk about, we wouldn't need to talk about it to begin with. Well, I think
2: the thing is, is that things are always urgent, and there's never enough time. Mm -hmm. And um, if we continue in a cycle of urgency, we will make ourselves extinct. Right. And I think that capitalism and Brahmanism and white supremacy create false c- cycles of urgency. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the only reason I had the time <clears throat> to do this book was because my mom fell ill and um, I was, you know, quarantined uh, because of the pandemic. And um, but normally I would be fighting one fight after the other after the other with my fellow leaders in mm-hmm. equality labs. But that in and of itself is a dehumanizing cycle because it presumes yeah. that there's scarcity when actually there's deep abundance yes. in this moment and this planet. But it's a lack of imagination and a lack of compassion that allows people to not see. Um, the greatest gift we have, which is each other, you know? And so I think that it's, you're, you're right that, you know, sometimes, especially with venture capitalists, like they only see what's important to them and what's in front of them until the injury comes in there. Mm. But I think that we have to stop treating the earth like a lifeboat, you know? <laughs> and that's part of, you know, one of the things I think that's right, that's also happening right now is a battle of futurisms, There is a futurism that is coming out of Silicon Valley that believes the only future for the species is getting the Earth, you know, getting the species off Earth. And we just need to think of it as a disposable, you know, stage, kind of like, you know, rockets have a disposable stage that gets it out of the atmosphere. Like the Earth is just a shell we need to break apart and get out of here. And that's it. And that might work for the, you know, the five white people um, and the billionaires that are connected to them and everyone else is abandoned to the darkness, Mm -hmm. but that's not the only model of futurism that exists. And that's why I wrote about Dalit Feminist Futures, is there is another future where we are interconnected, where we view the earth and other species as a partner to address this catastrophe of climate. And we work to heal ourselves and work to come back into balance. Yes, it is an incredibly hard thing to heal the things that we're dealing with, but if we spent as much money as we would in trying to go to Mars, as we even took like a 10th of that budget into climate restoration, into transformative justice practices in terms of education and investing in our capacity as humans, it would actually be a radical different choice. But we're just being winnowed into one vision of the future by really reckless people who have not done enough work on examining their own humanity. And I think. think Sorry, go ahead. And I just I just think it's an invitation for everyone to sit down and say we have a right to change the future and the, the agency is in our hands right now. We don't have to give everything away because, in order for them to build rockets and to build concentration camps and to to work these mining um, companies, they need actual labor. They're not actually doing the dirty work. We are. So if we refuse to contribute to our own extinction, what could we use our labor for instead?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I. I I, I love the 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 um I guess optimism, but also the the realization like there's no alternative but to um to work towards that kind of futurity rather than signing up for what we're being, as you say, winnowed into. Now you mentioned Silicon Valley, and of course that is where we spend our time um living here in in the Bay Area. So I'm very aware of Stanford's relationship to Silicon Valley. And and so I found the section in your book on caste and IT uh, particularly disturbing. Can you explain a little bit for our listeners how CAST operates in Silicon Valley and therefore, uh, and I hadn't really thought about this, therefore in search engines, in algorithms, and all sorts of insidious ways that most of us are utterly unaware of?
2: Well, I think one of the things that people need to understand is that caste is as significant a system of exclusion as race. Yeah, And it impacts over 1.9 billion people Mm -hmm. and a significant portion of the global workforce that builds tech for the world comes from uh, this region that has this deep system of bias. Now, South Asians would be unique to all of human history if they were to grow up under this system of bias and not have some level of it incorporated into their implicit and explicit biases. Yeah. It doesn't mean that every South Asian is castus, but it is something that shapes our worldview and how we interact with other communities. And that's, you know, my book is one of the first books that kind of sketches out caste in the United States diaspora mm-hmm. and also how it works um, in workforces, particularly like that of tech. And so the things that we've seen in our research is that, you know, surprise, surprise, you know, there are CASTIS alumni networks that create CASTIS hiring practices. There's the regularity of the open usage of CAST slurs in the workplace. Mm. Uh, people are facing, you know, discriminatory, um, you know, managerial reviews, harassment and bullying, even like sexual harassment and other forms of gender-based, um, gender-based violence. So you don't, you don't need to know and be an expert on CAST to know these are unlawful illegal practices related to American uh, civil rights obligations and human rights um, law. Mm -hmm. So It shouldn't be happening, you know, and it doesn't, you don't even need massive data sets, although we do have data about this at Equality Labs, where two out of three Dalits have experienced and have reported experiencing workplace discrimination, but you don't need data set in terms of being in violation of your civil rights obligation, you just need one case. And there's plenty of those cases that are coming out right now, you know, whether it's the BAP case in New Jersey, where hundreds of workers were um, trafficked and worked for a dollar an hour. Um, you know, as alleged by those workers in conditions that were extremely casteist to Lucky Bali Reddy in Santa Clara, who trafficked hundreds of workers, including young Dalit women, to be his sex slaves. To you know, the state of California suing the Cisco Corporation for casteism. Mm-hmm. So there is um, there is a tremendous moment where Dalit people are speaking out about discrimination in the industry, and I think what's really interesting is is that cast isn't just about um, healthy workforces you know again you know caste is a workers right because of the high rates of caste discrimination we're seeing in the workforce but Biased companies create biased products, and so it really becomes an even larger question about how some of these CASIS employees might be, um, you know, contributing to other discriminatory functions of tools, whether it's discriminatory AI. Um, or you know surveillance tech and policing and carceralized tech towards other immigrants and BIPOC communities, it is important to realize that these companies don't exist in a bubble. They're actually part and parcel of the systems of exclusion that we're working to take on. Mm -hmm. And so you know it's really an important thing for us to be thoughtful about it um, and to work with workers to transform their institutions because fundamentally most workers don't want to work in biased and discriminatory places. And that's the remarkable thing that I've seen is that I've seen you know, many workers from across all of the corporations that you have in Silicon Valley, people coming out and saying, not on my watch. I don't want to see caste bigotry. Add caste as a protected category. Let's get Dalit History Month celebrated. Let us move away from this pathway of discrimination and to a place of healing and reconciliation. Um, and I've been really you know, heartened by that because and I grew up in the United States. So I've seen the trajectory to where, from where I was one of the few openly out Dalits to now seeing thousands of Dalits out all around the world who are advocating for civil rights through different, their organizations or different movements. And so we are in such a global moment of recognition of this problem. And I think most importantly that we want to not just you know, talk about the problem We want to heal and we want to make sure that the rule of law is implemented wherever we might be. So we don't experience this level of discrimination and dehumanization ever again.
1: You speak of um, caste as a protected category um, and you also refer to yourself as openly out. So I just want to ask you about that, because unlike race, there are as far as I understand it um, as a white person, there is no there are no optic markers of caste and so people have to um out themselves or identify themselves as being caste oppressed and they may not feel safe to do so because there are no clearly defined legal protections around caste in the United States am i am i setting the scene correctly there correct me if if not no that's definitely correct i mean caste is it's unusual, especially
2: for American HR managers to understand, because right. it basically on the outside looks like brown people discriminating against other brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I always use the term. It's like, you know, Dalits are essentially uh, minorities within minorities yeah. who have protected um, classification both under UN covenants around um, uh, like the the Convention Against um, Discrimination in Article 29, where caste is explicitly laid out there, but also the understanding is, is that caste is part of existing embedded categories of race and ancestry. and country of origin. And um, and the thing that's important with that is, is that the reason why delits are asking for it to be explicit is not only because of how pernicious the violence is, yeah. but also because um, when it's not listed, there is not caste competency at the HR and managerial level. Yes, Complaints that are occurring about this um, often go unrecognized or um, huge violations are being continued because the managers themselves are conducting this level of violence. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's important. And we've had, there's other protected categories like that of sexual orientation and um, gender identification that have gone through similar explicit um, journeys. Because again, these, the existing categories were not sufficient enough to address what was going on. Um, and I think in going back to your question, the one thing that is very unusual, I think, for people to understand about Dalits is that um, many of us are in the closet, you know? And it's very akin to the special category of sexual orientation, is that because of so- the heavy repercussions people face, mm when it comes to being out, and it doesn't just impact you in your job, it will impact you in all of your other future jobs because of how tightly linked um, networks are for a particular profession. Right. Um, you know, oftentimes people choose to stay in the closet because of their fear. You know? And in our work, you know, the, you know, in the survey that we conducted around caste discrimination in the US, you know, one in four Dalits had experienced physical or verbal assault one in three educational discrimination and two out of three workplace discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have some of the highest rates of discrimination of the Asian American community as a whole. And um, that I think that's why it's not a surprise that over half of the people that took our survey that were Dulled said, they preferred to be in the closet because of their fears of being outed, you know. As a result, so you know, I think my job, as as well as you know, many other Dalit American activists, has been to make the conditions safer in society so that people have a choice to come out if they want to, you know. Right now, that choice is being taken away from us because there's unlawful discrimination occurring in American institutions broadly across the country. And so we need to change that. And I think some of that happens with a change in laws, with litigation um, that is addressing the kinds of harms that we're seeing. Um, And also I think um, an embodiment of caste um, equity, where people finally acknowledge how how horrible the system is and that it as a soul wound has impacts on both the caste oppressed and the caste privileged And it's time for us to let go of it, you know? And the only way that a wound goes away is you have to expose it, tend Mm -hmm. to it and let it heal. And right now there's so much gaslighting, so much uh, just open denial about Mm -hmm. how bad this is Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we're, we're really at the stages of the caste equity civil rights movement to where Um, The racial civil rights movement was like in the 60s and 70s. So it's a moment where, you know, we really have as a South Asian community, a deep reckoning to really consider. And we can choose to be on the side of the conversation that is the bigoted side, or we can be part of the solution and healing
1: you you talk a lot about healing uh, in the book and and so it's yes it's about trauma of course it's also about healing and i want to ask you a little bit about your personal journey but before we go there and that we will wrap up with that you i've heard you speak and um in the book also you talk you, so viscerally about about the, the 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 wound that also exists in the body of the privileged Can you describe that a little bit for our listeners? Because to me as a person with multiple privileges, I I suppose I'd never really thought about that. And when I heard you describe that, it it hit very hard. And I think it's important that we hear that.
2: Well, I think one of the, the reasons why I really turned to both Buddhism and the thinking around embodiment and mindfulness was I have over 20 years of working on this issue of caste equity. And I have seen, you know, people who are dominant caste absolutely become utterly unhinged at the prospect mm-hmm. of caste being added as a protected category.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I am oh, I always remember this one woman who gave testimony at the Santa Clara um, Human Rights Commission, mm-hmm. where she just, you know, started like, you know, yelling at the commissioners and saying, are you ready for Santa Clara to be ground zero in Hindu genocide? Do you want the blood of Hindus on your hands? Mm-hmm. Do you want us to wear our cast like the star of David? That's what's going to happen if you if you conduct yourself like this, you know? And again, we have to be reminded, what was the policy discussion? It was about adding caste as a list of, to the list of protected categories for the county. Right. Adding, adding that doesn't impinge on any other categories. But for her, the prospect of Dalits getting equity went directly to that survival place, even though that's not an actual truth. Right. And, and I really thought about, you know, seeing these people over and over and over again, you see them trapped in their own trauma worlds. You know, these are hells of their own creation right. that have no rooting in facts or even law, but just their own stories that have been told to them about what happens when everyone is equal. And that's a place that cannot be addressed with um, seminars and workshops and books That's a place where only they can deescalate themselves with self-awareness and mindfulness. And that's what really brought me to the conversation of the caste soul wound and thinking about embodiment as a pathway for a really crucial terrain for caste abolition. Because um, in my own experience, while we're seeing, you know, the, the pace of civil rights being dictated by the fragility Um, of caste privileged people, at the same time, caste oppressed people never get the space for embodiment around the tremendousness of what we experience related to caste, you know, outside of the daily headlines of dehumanization where we see our fellow brothers and sisters you know, raped and murdered and lynched and mass atrocity on top of the structural exclusion where we face some of the highest rates of illiteracy and poverty and um, poor health outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we're not allowed to talk about it, nor are we allowed to even hold the pain. We're expected to just show up to our works and jobs and not not, not even present as if we're grieving from the tremendous caste stress that we endure from you know, our day to day. And certainly as someone who's been a very public advocate around caste equity, there's another layer to this indignity, which is that if you speak openly and try to break the silence of it, you are subjected to tremendous violence, yeah. tremendous dehumanization and attack. And that certainly happened to me where I've been... The recipient of, um, you know, disinformation, libelous slander, defamation, and people wanting to target my parents and myself,
0: yeah.
2: and um, and I think that you know, obviously, we're all very strong in terms of us, you know, standing as a movement and resisting that. But late at night, you know, when you're by yourself. It's, it's, it's a place of deep grief, you know? And I think like my, <clears throat> I like many other Dalit leaders struggle with depression, struggle with that internalized dehumanization and even had suicidal ideation. And to say that is not an admission of weakness. It's actually an acknowledgement of the actual um, harm, Mm -hmm. that is occurring because of caste stress Mm -hmm. and as a Dalit leader I felt it was so important to name the psychosocial because when we're not we're actually losing so many people to the epidemic of suicide in our community I mean it's so large that our term our people came up with the term institutional murder to try to put the blame of it not on ourselves but on this you know you know, defiling, disgusting system that would take our very lives away. Yeah. And I think that's why it was important for me to embody Dalit people in my text and to say, we have a right first before anything else to say caste exists. It has caused us deep pain and deprivation and we demand the right to heal. Those three things if they are fully allowed to be exhibited in society, transform the very nature of caste societies. Because caste societies, if they if they allow Dalit people to be embodied, they all of a sudden cannot allow the tremendous amount of theft that is occurring um, in the name of
1: religion and cultural practices. When you um... Are alone and, mm-hmm. and feel the the pain of the work that you do and the 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 just awful repercussions and I've witnessed those on social media and and your security concerns when you're out in public, um and and that's just a glimpse of it that I have seen and so I can't even begin to imagine what that is like for you. How do you cope? Like, how do you take care of yourself?
2: Well, I think one of the things that, you know, I really write a lot about is how there is hope in human connection Mm -hmm. and empathetic witness and that just as caste and white supremacy and patriarchy um, dehumanizes us, we actually get tremendous healing in rehumanizing each other through love and through joy and care for each other. Uh, and care for each other. And that's a big part of why I really focused on healing myself as part of my own journey as a leader. And that involved, you know, both meditation practice and working with um, you know people who really had been thinking about this in the context of race and using some of those tools to basically, you know when you can't remove yourself from violence, you can attenuate its signal. So practicing that on my own self and learning to be calm in the face of constant degradation and practicing non-attachment. So separating myself from those messages and then being very confident and strong about my purpose, my divinity, my right to be in in relationship and in right relationship with other humans and other species and the earth. Mm -hmm. Um, But additionally, I also think it was really important to um, create a space where other South Asians who wanted to be caste abolitionists could find a political home. And so the work that we do in Equality Labs has been incredibly healing because I've seen a political space for Dalit feminists of all genders who are able to finally say openly Um, that they believe in an intersectional vision for um, our freedom and to be supported by caste allies who are doing the work to unlearn their caste supremacy and not making it the work of the oppressed. And so when we've done this work with the unlearning caste supremacy workshop, it's tremendous to see the many leaders who come out of this process start to transform their institutions around the world. And so even in this dark time, I'm deeply hopeful About what can come next. And I'm deeply hopeful about our potential to heal, you know, because we have, you know, we we are in this very powerful choice point as a species, we can choose extinction, or we can choose life. And I want to choose life. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening to choose life, because we still have a pathway forward. Right. You know, all the choices haven't been taken from us, but it, it, is, it is in the interests of the people in power to make us think that they are, and that's why I want to empower people to say, No, this is a moment where we still have so much future ahead of us. Let us choose life together, let us choose healing.
1: Ben Maury Sundararajan, Rajan, thank you. Just so much. I do not have words because I know how busy your days are um and how we had to schedule this talk. But I'm just so grateful to you for spending time with me on the Saspod and with all our listeners out there. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And I really appreciate the space that
2: um, I've had at the center to be able to write this book, because, again, it was such a difficult journey. Um, But I really encourage everyone who's listening um, to pick up the book, you can buy it anywhere from your best and favorite bookseller. Um, It's called the trauma of cast and it drops November fifteenth. But you know, we'd love you to pre order it because all of that support really sends a message of love to cast depressed people at a time when um, we're under attack as a movement. Um, but I know that there are more people here who believe in the freedom of all peoples than who believe in the bigotry of a few. So thank you for standing with us and by the book and looking forward to being in more community and conversation and empathetic witness with you all. So
1: thank you N. J. Beam and Jaisapitri. J. Beam, J. Savitri. We will, of course, link to the book in the show notes of the podcast. And also, we're going to have some more events with Mori uh, in the new calendar year around International Women's Day and Dalit History Month in April. So if you want to stay up to date, you can sign up for our mailing list at SouthAsia.Stanford.edu. Uh, of course, please uh, follow the podcast Uh, If you enjoy these conversations, you can rate and review us because, as you know, we don't love the algorithm, but we do have to work with it, uh, at least for now. Uh, And I also want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro to the podcast and Simrat Mataru for post-production. For listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Centre for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu. And find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.
0: It's to...